Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia, and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, and we're coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL. Uh, here is an uh, opportunity we have with you each week to share the American view of law and government. That is the view of our founders. They had a very clear philosophy of government expressed in the Declaration of Independence. It was simply this. There is a creator God. Our rights come from him, and the only purpose of human human civil government is to protect and defend those God-given rights. I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney. I serve as the Senior Instructor at Institute on the Constitution. And with me, my wonderful two collaborators on this Friday morning, Phil Duffy, our Constitutional Instructor, and Mike Jeremita, who we say is our warrior in the courtroom, defending the God-given right of the people to keep and bear arms. Well, we've been walking through what we're calling the Dirty Dozen, that is 12 really bad, awful, no good, rotten Supreme Court cases, <laughs> and there's there's a good good bit more than just a dozen that, that we could choose from. We're actually working on the next series, uh, the twelve good cases, and that's much harder to to come up with twelve really good, truly constitutional decisions by the Supreme Court. But it's useful in this study because we're able to see where the court has actually strayed from the constitutional standard, where they've taken us away from the founders' vision of law and government, where they in, in basically foisted on the American people a different philosophy of government than that of our founders. And it's important to understand these cases, to understand where we are at now, how we got to this place, and also thereby to understand what we need to restore. And obviously, the restoration comes and, and begins, first of all, with understanding that American view, there is a creator God, our rights come from him. The only purpose of government is to secure those God-given rights. And then Understanding our founding documents in light of that worldview, understanding of the Declaration of Independence, understanding the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and then the subsequent amendments, and seeing that we need to elect people to office who hold to those founders' views and the founders' philosophy and have a founders' understanding of our Constitution, Declaration, and Bill of Rights. I believe that's the only way we're going to restore liberty in our land. Well, the Dirty Dozen case up this morning is more recent in time, 2015, Obersfeld v. Hodges. And uh, Phil, why don't you bring us your thoughts on Obersfeld v. Hodges? Well, before getting into this specific case, it is important to look at some history on the same-sex marriage issue, which Cornell's Legal Information Institute has provided. In 1972, in the decision in Baker v. Nelson, the Supreme Court of the United States declined to hear the case about the denial of the marriage license application for same-sex couple for want of substantial federal question. This ruling blocked federal courts from reviewing same-sex marriage cases for decades, leaving the decision solely in the hands of the states. In 1973, Maryland became the first state to create a law that explicitly defines marriage as a union between a man and a woman, and other states were eager to adopt Maryland's course. Virginia in 1975, Florida, California, and Wyoming in 1977. In the late 1980s and early 1990s, same-sex couples were able to see some signs of hope on the marriage front. In 1981, the San Francisco Board of Supervisors passed an ordinance that allowed homosexual couples and unmarried heterosexual couples to register for domestic partnership which also granted hospital visitation rights and other benefits. 
Three years later, the District of Columbia also passed a domestic partnership law granting same-sex couple a number of important benefits, like the possibility of receiving a health care coverage if their partner was employed by the D.C. government. In 1993, the highest court in Hawaii ruled that a ban on same-sex marriage may violate the state's constitution's equal protection clause, the first time a state court has ever inched toward making same-sex marriage legal. However, the First Circuit Court buried the ideas that the decision um, propelled, and in 1996, the U.S. Congress added another blow by passing the Defense of Marriage Act, even though DOMA, as it's called, did not ban same-sex marriage. It provided the only heterosexual couple. It provided that only heterosexual couple, couples be granted federal marriage benefits. Okay, uh, the binary thinking stage has been set on this matter. On the one side is that a person should be able to marry any other person. Think of this as freedom of spousal choice, or if you wish, just pro-choice. On the other side are those who believe that marriage ought to be between two consenting adults of different sex. In the minds of those from these polar opposite beliefs, the only question is how to amass enough political power such that the opponent might be silenced. There is another position, however, and it is not one of compromise, but principle. It does require a rethinking of the relationship between government and the governed. For a case like uh, Obergefell versus Hodges to be heard in any court, the plaintiff should have standing, which typically includes the fact that the plaintiff has been harmed. Before getting into the specifics of Obergefell, let's rethink the kinds of harm that Cornell's Legal Information Institute has described resulting from legislation. One of the issues is state issuance of marriage licenses. Why does a state need to issue a marriage license to two consulting adults so it can treat them preferentially from non-married people? Yes, there is this question about public health and preventing the spread of sexually transmitted diseases such as syphilis. The Springfield News leader has this commentary about the history of these blood tests. In 1980, 34 states required a blood test for syphilis before a couple could get married. Now only the District of Columbia and Montana mandate one. The Montana test is for women only. Well, that reduces the case for state licensing to preferential treatment of married taxpayers over non-married taxpayers. As the federal recognition of marriage is assumed under state law, uh, under tax law, uh, but what if federal taxation were blind to marriage status and every other consideration? Federal expenditures would be covered by tax allocations to each state based upon the number of individuals enjoying full citizenship, including voting. If we view federal government as a limited service to the states and people, this seems to seems like an equitable taxing method. As an immense benefit, there would be no costly, dangerous internal revenue service uh, to fee feed and fear. Only 50 tax bills would be prepared annually for or other period, an effort that could be completed by a single person with a spreadsheet in less than an hour once the mechanism was set up. So what is the point of this seeming diversion from Obergefell versus Hodges? 
It is that we, in considering these cases, too often we address only the surface symptoms of a problem. If governments were not in the business of granting preferential treatment for politically connected, cases like Obersfeld would be reduced to claiming emotional harm because the plaintiffs have not been accepted by defendants. As dubious as these claims might be, the point is that any two persons can claim to be married or alternatively the king and queen of Siam, as long as there's no fraud involved. Those wishing to have their marriages formally recognized might look to their faith communities for that purpose. So let's look at the background of the Obersfeld versus Hodges case. According to the Legal Information Institute, Obersfeld versus Hodges is a consolidation of six lower court cases from Michigan, Ohio, Kentucky, and Tennessee. The Legal Information Institute continues. Claimants from each of the six district court cases appealed to the Supreme Court of the United States. On November 14, 2014, plaintiffs in De Beer versus Snyder, Obersfeld versus Hodges, and Tanko versus Haslam filed petitions for writs of certiorari, which is judicial review of a decision of a lower court or government agency, uh, with the court. Okay, what's the majority opinion? The majority opinion is reported by the Legal Information Institute as Justice Kennedy wrote the majority opinion signed by Justices Ginsburg, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan. The majority held that state same-sex marriage bans violate the due process and equal protection clauses of the 14th Amendment. Citing Griswold versus uh, Connecticut, the court affirmed that the fundamental rights found in the due process clause of the 14th Amendment extend to certain personal choices central to the individual dignity and autonomy, including intimate choices that define personal identity and beliefs. But the identification and protection of these fundamental rights has not been reduced to any formula. As the Supreme Court has found in cases such as Loving versus Virginia, Zablocki versus Red Hale, and Turner versus Safley, the extension includes a fundamental right to marry. Again, as the Supreme Court had done in Roe v. Wade, the majority unilaterally and arbitrarily defined a new right while ignoring the need to adhere to the amendment required uh, requirements specified in Article 5 of the Constitution. The majority added, the court listed four reasons why the fundamental right to marry applies to same-sex couples, citing United States versus Windsor. First, the right to personal choice regarding marriage is inherent in the concept of individual autonomy. Second, the right to marry is fundamental because it supports a two-person union, unlike any other in its importance to the committed individuals, a principle applying equally to same-sex couples. Third, the fundamental right to marry safeguards children and families and thus draws meaning from related rights of child-rearing, procreation, and education. Procreation is not a necessary condition to a legal right, but it is one of the factors that make the right worth protecting. <clears throat> Fourth, marriage is a keystone of our social order, and there is no difference between same and opposite sex couples with respect to this principle, and for no reason denying that same sex couples the right to marry is against the social principles of our society. 
Well, concerning the first test, one might ask, so what does that mean? The second is equally confusing. Where in history is it shown that any two persons may marry? History clearly shows that marriage is the union between a man and a woman. The third test, the fundamental right to marry, safeguards children and families and thus draws meaning from related rights of child-rearing, procreation, and education, certainly founders on the act of procreation as biology makes clear. And the fourth states, as a fact, something that is hardly universally accepted, that denying the same-sex couples the right to marry is against the social principles of our society. So there's a misuse of a priori justification by the Supreme Court justices. The Stanford Encyclopedia of uh, Philosophy offers this definition of a priori justification, a method of thinking that leads to a conclusion. A priori justification provides reasons for thinking a proposition is true that comes from merely understanding or thinking about that proposition. In contrast, a posteriori justification requires more than merely understanding a proposition observations based on our senses or introspection about our current mental state are needed for us to be empirically or a posteriori uh, justified in believing that some, they, that some proposition is true. Okay, to illustrate the difference, it identifies the following pairs of propositions as examples, claiming that the first is reasonable a priori justification while a second can only be proven with empirical evidence. The first one is, all bachelors are unmarried males. Okay? But the second, all bachelors in the U.S. are taxed at different rates from married men. Uh, not so fast. The second, all vixens are female. And in contrast, all vixens are cunning. The third, green is a color. Grass is green. Well, not always. I could take a look at my lawn today and tell you it isn't. So the false or a priori justification results from asserting something as true when evidence is required. The majority opinion Obersfeld, in Obersfeld versus Hodges is based upon these false a priori justifications. The right to marry is fundamental because it supports a two-person union, unlike any other in its importance to the committed individuals. Okay. And second, there's no difference between same and opposite sex couples with respect to the principle of marriage as a keystone of our social order. These may have been the personal beliefs of the majority of justices, but these are beliefs are challenged by a significant part of the citizenry of the United States. Again, the majority justices committed the error of substituting their personal opinions for legal evidence. So let's take a look at the conflict between the federalism theme and the 14th Amendment. As noted previously, there is a conflict between the original federalism theme of the Constitution and the 14th Amendment, Section 1 in which are embedded the ideas of due process of law and equal protection of the laws. It is not that these ideas are wrong in general, but those 
who originally wrote the 14th Amendment, failed to see the confusion that would arise in the future. To understand how conflicts in constitutional law interpretation ought to be avoided, consider how the 21st Amendment was written overturning the 18th Amendment, which made the distribution of alcoholic beverages a crime. The 21st Amendment states in its section 1, the 18th article of amendment to the Constitution of the United States is hereby repealed. Section 2, the transportation or importation into any state, territory, or possession of the United States for delivery or use therein of intoxicating liquors in violation of the laws thereof is hereby prohibited. This language leaves little room for judicial interpretation. To the contrary today, there is evidence that the original intent of this section of the, of the 14th Amendment has been considerably expanded by federal courts. Rather than relying on questionable court precedents, a deeper understanding of the Constitution requires that we return to its underlying themes, of which federalism is the specific concern here. Both Alexander Hamilton and James Madison, who would later in their careers be members of opposing parties, agreed on the importance of the concept. They expressed it differently, but it's clear from their writings in the Federalist Essays they were talking about the same thing. Hamilton spoke of concurrent sovereignty of the federal government and states in the Federalist Number 33, whereas Madison mentioned residual sovereignty in number 39. Both agreed that the federal government and the states had jurisdiction over different objects or areas. The division of sovereignty was described in the Constitution itself. The idea was that the federal government was created by the states and ratified by the people to have limited enumerated powers. The idea was further clarified in the Tenth Amendment, which states, the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the people to the states respectively, or to the people. Due process of law and equal protection of the laws were means of implementing the themes of the Constitution, but did not trump them. Max Kramer and Lawrence B. Solom have written in the Virginia Law Review. The original meaning of the Fifth Amendment due process of law clause is captured by a third theory, which we call the process theory. The phrase due process of law had a very precise and restricted meaning. The clause is limited to legally required process in what is today a narrow and technical sense of that word. The concept of equal protection of the laws is more encompassing and has a longer history that dates to at least the Magna Carta of 1215. Even then, the concept of equal protection of the laws only applied within a sovereign nation. The Norman English had invaded Ireland in 1159, but nobody at Runnymede in 1215 would have acknowledged that the Irish were entitled to equal protection of the laws of England. Sovereignty trumps due process and equal protection of the laws. One cannot seriously study the founding of the United States 
and conclude that the federal government was formed to have absolute sovereignty, meaning that the states were mere subdivisions of the federal government. So what qualifies Obersfeld versus Hodges for the Dirty Dozen is that its wrongful application of due process and the equal protection of the laws outside of their legitimate jurisdiction opens up the judiciary to the potential for completely undermining the Constitution of the United States. Oh, amen, Phil. Amen. And uh, I like your, your phrasing that the, they substituted their personal opinions uh, for legal realities or legal opinions. And that's indeed what they did. It's, it's interesting, actually, look at the dissents. Oftentimes people, you know, just look at uh, the opinion, the majority opinion. But I think the dissents hit on some very important issues. Chief Justice John Roberts wrote in his dissent, he argued that while same-sex marriage might be good and fair policy, the Constitution does not address it. And therefore, it is beyond the purview of the court to decide whether states have to recognize or license such unions. Instead, Instead, the issue should be decided by individual state legislatures based on the will of their electorates. Uh, agreed. And actually, uh, you know, that's basically what they have done in the Dobbs case here with uh, Roe v. Wade. They said, no, this is not really a federal issue. That needs to be returned to the states. The states need to deal uh, with that. And he, he continued that the Constitution and judicial precedents clearly protect a right to marry and require states to apply laws regarding marriage equally. But the court cannot overstep its bounds and engage in judicial policymaking. The precedents regarding the right to marry only strike down unconstitutional limitations on marriage as it has been traditionally defined uh, and government in intrusions. And therefore, there's no precedential support for making a state alter its definition of marriage. Slam dunk. Amen. That's exactly what what was done. In fact, many states, Maryland being one that uh, had redefined, had not redefined, but had established a definition of marriage in their state constitution or in their state statutes that marriage was only between one man and one woman. Let me use Alabama as an example because Alabama is the only state in the union that stood up to this tyranny uh, being handed down here by the Supreme Court. They had the definition of marriage in their state constitution. Now, you note, as, as Phil detailed, there was only four states uh, that were cases entering into this. So how could a case be, uh, regarding four states and their statutes apply to the rest of the states in the union? Alabama was not part of this case. It was not involved in this suit. And therefore, how should a opinion of the Supreme Court change the supreme law of the state of Alabama that said marriage is only between a man and a woman? And so I think uh, uh, Chief Justice is correct in saying it is not in the purview of the federal government to go about redefining marriage. If it's going to be dealt with, that has to be dealt with by the states. Now, other uh, uh, dissents, Justice Anthony Scalia and Justice Clarence Thomas joined a dissent. Uh, Justice Scalia wrote that the majority opinion overstepped the bounds of the court's authority, both by exercising the legislative rather than the judicial power. And by doing so in the realm that the Constitution reserves for the states. Again, exactly right issue. 
This is not a federal issue. And like you pointed out, Phil, for many, many years, these uh, cases would not be heard because the courts had said, no, 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 this is not a federal issue. That's not for the federal government to make any uh, uh, approach to this issue because to do so is to overstep their bounds. And uh, Justice Scalia argued that the question of whether same-sex marriage should be recognized is for one state uh, state legislatures and not to be decided by unelected judges because that goes against one of the most basic precepts of the Constitution, that political change should occur through the votes of elected representatives. And so Scalia argues that in this policymaking role, the majority opinion departed from established 14th Amendment jurisprudence to create a right where none exists in the Constitution. Amen. Again, and Justice Thomas, he joined in the dissent and he wrote that in a separate dissent, he argued the majority opinion stretched the doctrine of substantive due process rights found in the 14th Amendment too far and in doing so distorted the democratic process by taking power from the legislature and putting it in the hands of the judiciary. One final dissent from uh, Samuel Alito. He wrote, the Constitution does not address the right of same-sex couples to marry, and therefore the issue is reserved to the states to decide whether to depart from the traditional definition of marriage by allowing a majority of the court to create a new right. The majority opinion dangerously strayed from the democratic process and greatly expanded the power of the judiciary beyond what the Constitution allows. So I believe these dissents from this case are actually more valuable than the, the text written by Justice Anthony Kennedy for the majority, uh, giving a 5-4 uh, majority. And as you pointed out, Phil, he argues the due process clause of the 14th Amendment carries a, guarantees this right to marry. That's one of the fundamental liberties that it protects and it applies to same-sex couples because there's no difference in Kennedy's mind between a same-sex couple and a heterosex couple. There's nothing at all. He would say there's no difference whatsoever and they have to be treated equally. And he goes on to say, because it's inherent to the concept of individual autonomy. Wait a minute. Hold on. Stop right there. If individual autonomy is what has to be protected, then somebody that says, I am the king of Siam and everybody needs to bow down to me and kiss my feet because I am the king of Siam. I self-identify as the king and therefore everybody must address me. They must kiss my feet. And by the way, they must all give me a gold piece, you know, one ounce gold piece because I'm the king of Siam. No, no, no. Your individual autonomy cannot change reality. In fact, individual autonomy cannot change the laws of the universe. And here's where the whole, the whole scheme, even the dissents, I believe, go astray. They fail to recognize the basis of law in these United States. The basis of laws declared in our Declaration of Independence as the laws of nature and, the, and of nature's God, by which it is a direct reference, as we said before, due to Blackstone and everyone reading Blackstone in the founding era, is a direct reference to the Bible. That is, the definition of marriage has been given to us, and it is part of the laws of the universe, and therefore it cannot be changed. And anybody that violates the laws of the universe is due subject to the punishment from the laws of the universe for violating those. And one of the laws of the universe is that marriage is between one man and one woman. The creator has established that. No human being, by spilling black ink on a white piece of paper, in spite of the fact that they're dressed in a black robe when they do this magical trick, by spilling blank ink on a white piece of paper, they cannot change the laws of the universe. Marriage is only between one man and one woman. The creator defined that. The only job of human civil government would be to prevent 
government from interfering in that. A government saying, well, you know, there's certain groups of people. We don't think this group or that group, those people cannot intermarry. And by the way, that's exactly where this all started from. When we look at the federal government having the hubris, thinking they are bigger than God, greater than God, above God, how did they get to that? Well, it started after the war between the states, a war that brought many disastrous results in our country. One of those disastrous results was many states began to pass laws uh, banning interracial marriage. They called miscegenation laws, saying this uh, race of people and this race, of none of those people can get married. However, they also at the same time introduced the idea that if you wanted to get married and you were of the forbidden classes for marrying one another, you could go to the government and pay them a fee and obtain a license. By the way, the definition of a license is the uh, authority or the right to do that which is illegal. So you get a license to do something that otherwise would be illegal. So you can marry somebody of this other race that's uh, against the, the legal policy of the state as long as you pay the fee and as long as you get a license. So miscegenation laws were the origin of marriage licenses in America. George Washington didn't get a marriage license. Thomas Jefferson, again, none of these people in our founding era, there was no marriage licenses because the license was not issued by the civil government. It was understood that the family government, read Exodus 31, and the state government had nothing to do with the family government and the church government. They were the ones involved in determining if the marriage was legitimate, which is why in the traditional marriage vows, uh, as the service begins, the pastor, these days they don't do it, but they used to, say, is there anyone who can uh, object to a justified reason why this union should not take place? And by the way, the publication of those marriage bans would happen weeks before the actual wedding ceremony, giving people plenty of opportunity to say, oh, I know that guy's married and he's not divorced. He can't marry this woman. No. So there was opportunity. It didn't have to happen there in the ceremony. But the ceremony began with that statement to offer a last opportunity for anyone that knew any reason why this couple should not be married. Speak now or forever hold your peace. That's where that whole uh, scenario came from. So it was family government. Father of the bride is the one that gives away the bride. He's the one that actually technically has the license for his daughter to marry. And that's the biblical concept. That's a, a church concept. And that was an English law concept as well. And so the father, if he licenses the marriage, the church then must approve that this couple can legally get married under God's law. We don't permit bigamy. So if he's already married, he can't uh, marry someone else when he's already married to some other person. So all of those things were what controlled marriage and the civil government would would back that up. That was its only job to back that up. And if there was a legitimate married and marriage entered into, if there was a divorce, then the government, again, civil government would be involved in, in how that was adjudicated. But the, the problem is, once you give the nose of the camel of the civil government in one any area of life, it's going to take it all. And so soon the civil government saw, oh, here's a money-making scheme. Every couple that wants – let's just require every couple to get a marriage license, not just the miscegenation couples, but every couple. And before the 1920s rolled around, every state in the union was requiring a marriage license. And so you look at the divorce laws and the government took over the divorce laws as well. And so we're going to establish our standard no-fault divorce, uh, Ronald Reagan being the first one in California to pass laws to that effect. And uh, basically the whole realm of marriage – 
was captured by the civil government. And once they captured it all and claimed that they owned the territory of marriage, just give them a few more years, and in their hubris, they'll assume they're God. That's right. The civil government has assumed that it is God and that it can redefine marriage, that it can change the laws of the universe. And our founder said, absolutely not. That's the reason we fought that war with Great Britain. The laws of nature and nature's God were being violated by King George III. There's 27 reasons listed in the Declaration of Independence, 27 ways he was violating the laws of nature and nature's God that are given to us in the word of God. And therefore, he's unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Well, I think we're in the same boat today. We look at our civil government, and it is unfit to be the ruler of a free people because it is going about, and this is a, 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 maybe the biggest example currently, but going about violating the laws of nature and nature's God, claiming that it has the authority to do so. It's kind of like the divine right of kings. The king's answer to the colonists when they complained about his behavior and said, hey, I'm the king. God has made me the king. You can't question what I'm doing or what I'm saying. The law is basically whatever comes out of my mouth. Or in this case, the law is whatever black ink we spill on a white piece of paper. And that is not a theory of government that any of our founders would have accepted. And it was not, it should not be a theory of government that we, the people in America, accept today. So I mentioned there was one state, the state of Alabama, that stood up to this tyranny. Alabama was not involved in the lawsuit, and therefore, technically speaking, they were not in the courtroom. This uh, ruling of Obersfeld did not apply to them. And so the chief justice, elected by the people of the state of Alabama, the chief justice of their Supreme Court, our good friend Roy Moore, he issued a uh, directive to the clerks of each county that they were not to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples, that that was against the law of uh, the, the state of Alabama, and that Despite Obersfeld, nothing had changed in Alabama. Obersfeld had their opinion. Maybe that applied to those four states that, that went into the court on, on, on that case, but it didn't apply to Alabama at all. And he was absolutely right. None of those uh, uh, clerks should have done so. However, the wicked other black-robed tyrants in the state of Alabama were very upset with him even though the people of Alabama had elected him twice as the chief justice, and they threw him out of his office as chief justice of the Supreme Court of the state of Alabama because he opposed this wicked intrusion on the part of the uh, Supreme Court of the United States against all the states and against God's law. Sadly, uh, he also ran for Senate, and oh my, all the all the evildoers, both the Democrat and Republican evildoers, came out against him to prevent him from uh, winning a seat in the Senate. So uh, uh, because he stood against Obersfeld, it was as if he, he had the plague or uh, he had leprosy of some sort. So the, the sad thing to me is that the American people have allowed this to take place. What should have happened, those five justices of the Supreme Court should have been immediately impeached. Their opinions were egregious in the extreme. Their opinions were a basic violation of the standard of law and government in America. That is, the laws of nature and nature's God are the foundation. And you got a Supreme Court denying the very foundation. Of, and the curious thing is here, they're not only denying the foundation, they're recognizing in their opinion. Wait a minute. Uh, this they, they recognize that marriage, and I'm quoting them, has been recognized as the keystone of social order. 
but you're destroying the keystone of social order. And people say, well, no, they're not destroying it. They're expanding it so more people can get married. Hogwash. Look at the history that took place in, in the Scandinavian countries that are about a decade and a half before us in uh, creating same-sex marriage stuff. And what what took place in those uh, those countries is very clear, the death of marriage. That's right. You look at Scandinavia, many of the uh, – they, they don't wouldn't call them states, but you know whatever subdivisions, uh, uh, jurisdictional divisions within their state, like in Sweden, there's whole sections of the country where not one person under the age of 45 is married. Not one. Nobody. Nobody's getting married at all because they recognize, wait a minute, if the state says that two sodomites getting together, that constitutes a marriage. We know that's a fraud. We, everybody knows that in their heart. That is a fraud. That's a violation of the laws of nature, nature's God. And if that's what marriage means, well, then it's ridiculous to get married. And so in those countries, marriage is dying. And by the way, the same thing is actually happening in our country now. The the marriage formation rate has uh, basically imploded. Young people are saying, marriage? (laughs) You're talking about marriage. That's ridiculous. If two sodomites, we know that that's not marriage. So why even bother to get married? We'll just live together. And if we're done with each other, we'll throw each other out and go get somebody else. And and that uh, means the death of the very foundation, the very building block of, of civilization, which is marriage and family. And so here, the court's not just issued a evil opinion, a unconstitutional opinion, opinion that they should have nothing to do with. They have actually struck at the foundation of what it means to be a good society and to be a, a civilization. And so all of their excuses and all their uh, things, we can see where this is leading. Clearly, if you oppose same-sex marriage, which I think better is, is stated as sodomite unmarriage. If you oppose it, persecution is coming your way. And uh, in fact, we know that that uh, uh, is not the end of the legal changes. There's a judge in New York this year, 2022, uh, October 4, 2022, who has said that uh, we need to uh, legalize polygamy. You know, the New York judge recognized polyamory late last month. Uh, he said, how much larger until who wants to love uh, to be the legal basis for every relationship? So it's by, hey, marriage then means nothing. You know, how about 15 people and 20 people decide they're going to get married? Well, it, it's a meaningless term. And, and that's where we have uh, devolved to as a nation, having rejected God's standard, the laws of nature and nature's God. So my appeal We need to return to that standard, and we need to elect people who recognize that standard and who overturn this and say, that's not law. Obersfeld is not law in our particular state, and we will not recognize same-sex marriages. And I know there will be a great battle uh, for uh, in in regards to that, but I think that is what needs to take place next. Phil, any any reaction that that you have to what was shared so far? Well, I'd like to return to the idea of, of standing, and I think we've we've almost beat this to death, but, and yet there's an important part that's missing. Um, we recognize that it must be a federal issue. That's not a technicality or anything of that nature. It is a fundamental idea that uh, unless this is a federal issue, it did not belong in the Supreme Court of the United States. So – how does something? How does an issue similar to this um, be involved in um, the federal level at the Supreme Court? Well, only if there's a specific violation of federally recognized individual rights. Where are those defined? Well, 
Most people have, you know, avoided reading the 26 pages of the Constitution, which I don't think is excessive to exercise your citizenship. But nonetheless, you don't have to search through the rest of the Constitution for this. It's a two concise pages. It's called the Bill of Rights. Now, we're all familiar with things like freedom of speech, freedom of the press, and so forth and so on. Do those cases belong in federal court? Absolutely. There's no question about that. But look through those two pages very, very closely and see if you find anything about marriage in general, much less homosexual marriage. It's not there. So I think the point about this is why didn't the American people react to this case, uh, the opinion issued on this case by the Supreme Court? I mean, they should have been out in the streets demonstrating against it. And yet people today have this, well, I think we should have, or I don't think we should have a kind of attitude. Hey, everybody ought to be able to, to immediately come back and say, show me where that right exists in the Bill of Rights. And, and you're absolutely right, Phil, because the basic issue, if we would peel back the layer here is say what sodomite on marriage would claim is that you have the right to sodomy. That is the right to practice that uh, sexual behavior. And so the question is, well, where's that right established? And again, I'd argue we go back to the laws of nature, nature's God. Our founders clearly point to the Bible as the source of that. And therefore, is there somewhere in the laws of nature, nature's God, you have the right to do that? No, no more than you have the right to murder or the right to steal or the right to commit any crime whatsoever. In fact, in all states, uh, and and this was struck down by the Supreme Court in Lawrence uh, v. Texas, sadly, that was the precursor to this because Lawrence v. Texas was the issue of uh, anti-sodomy laws in the state of Texas and other states in the union. And, you know, the Supreme Court claimed, oh, we're going to destroy all of those. No state can have any law against sodomy. It's like, where do you get that from? Well, again, if you find the laws of the universe to say that there is no right to do this wrong thing, then the federal government has no business in redefining the laws of the universe. But Lawrence v. Texas led to another case, and that led to ultimately to, here to Obersfeld. But you know, do not have a right to sodomy. That is not a right because the creator has not established that as a right that you have. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm for those who practice this uh, sin, this violation of God's law, you know, being treated as if there are, uh, you know, very evil, evil people. But that means the civil government should not have anything to do with it, not deciding in favor or against. And what happens actually, and we're seeing this take place with the most recent thing, kind of try to uh, codify Obersfeld in the uh, misnamed Respect for Marriage Act. It's not a respect for marriage. It's a, uh, an act that would defend sodomite on marriage and basically persecute anyone who will not go along with it. So the baker who doesn't want to bake a cake to celebrate a sodomite on, on marriage ceremony or the florist or the, you know, anybody involved in the wedding business that says, my conscience is grieved if I'm forced to have to participate in this pagan ceremony. And isn't that a First Amendment issue? You know, we have a God-given right. And we have a right protected by the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law, not only respecting the establishment of religion, 
nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Congress cannot do anything to prohibit a Christian from acting upon their conscience and what their conscience instructs them to do regarding that. So for the baker in Colorado, who multiple times was taken to court for refusing to bake a cake for a sodomite unmarriage ceremony. It's not these people couldn't get a cake baked. They just couldn't get it baked by this baker. And so they persecuted him. And now the Respect for Marriage Act, uh, in a sense, is establishing that level of persecution against anyone who would stand against the uh, sodomite agenda. Uh, and so we are going backwards in time. We're going back in, in into an era of persecution of those who stand on their religious principles, which, again, was one of the most important reasons our, our country was founded. The people fled religious persecution in Europe, and they wanted religious freedom established here, which is why it's right there in the First Amendment. So ultimately, whether they recognize what they were doing or not, they were making a strike against the First Amendment by establishing this, because then they're saying that if you disagree with this, you are now in violation of some federal law, the Respect uh, for Marriage Act. In addition to that, there's also a violation of contract. Um, we have, and contract is is specified, by the way, in the Constitution of the United States. Um, a contract is two or more people entering into a quid pro quo, which is, you know, uh, I give something and I get something uh, in return, and obviously both parties uh, expect to benefit by the arrangement. It must be voluntary. There must be no coercion involved. As soon as the government comes in and creates rules, it is creating coercion, particularly when it follows it up with fines and imprisonment. And I believe what I read in the Respective Marriage Act, that's what we're, we're heading towards. And we've seen that. I mean, people have been put out of business because they refuse to participate in, in this pagan ceremony. And where's the freedom of religion for those people? And the courts have also, oh, no, 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 no. We are going to elevate sodomite on marriage above your religious liberty. And that's really where the battle comes to. Uh, that, the, that the elevation of this right, supposed right, which, again, I would say is not in, in line at all with the laws of nature and nature's God, but the elevation of this supposed right is elevated above your freedom of speech, above your freedom of to ex exercise your religious liberty. And this is a very dangerous thing because, you know, if they've decided this on this one issue, where else are they ready now to begin chipping away at your freedom of religion, at your First Amendment protections, at your freedom of speech. You know, we have censorship taking place. Obviously, now uh, that the Twitter has revealed it, censorship taking place on these major tech platforms at the behest of the government. That is, the civil government tells Twitter what to do and Facebook what to do and, and to censor these things and to don't, don't allow any, anybody to say anything about Hunter's laptop and all of that sort of stuff. We see that the respect for the First Amendment is being chipped away. Major chunks of it are being lost day by day by day. Well, you know, the idea of elevation implies that uh, he or she who elevates has greater power. Uh, than others. And so basically what the Supreme Court majority is saying in this case is that uh, we are more powerful than the people who gave us the power that we we exercise. So that's that's a complete contradiction to constitutional law. Uh, I want to uh, kind of conclude on one thought here, and that is 
you know, let's put ourselves in the shoes of homosexuals, okay? And let us say that uh, uh, we have to fill out our tax forms like everybody else. And we encounter, and I'm going to talk about the federal tax uh, uh, forms in particular, because I think those are the, the most abusive. But in any case, we, we look at this, and the first thing we encountered, are you married or aren't you married? Well, you know, if, if they were to come to me and I were a judge, I'd have to say, hey, the sense of justice, I see your point. You know, why should a married person have a, uh, an advantage over an unmarried person? The, you know, the, the Declaration of Independence speaks nothing about marriage. What it does speak about is all men are created equal. And by that is meant all people are created equal. So why is it that somebody should have this advantage? Okay, now, in my mind, I think the problem goes back to the issue of our, our granting the federal government the income tax power. We should go back to the, the uh, Articles of Confederation taxing. You know, have the, the states tax, they get a single bill from the, the government. Then all of that issue goes away. Now, what are we talking about in terms of, of um, homosexuals uh, wanting to be married? Is this just to gain greater respectability? That's not what the law should be about. Indeed. And I think it is when when you read some of what uh, many of those who are proponents of this, what they really want is to force other people to honor and celebrate their life choices. Now, that's, <laughs> where's the liberty in that? Where's the freedom of speech in that? You know, where's the freedom of religion in that? There is none. And basically, it's we're going to destroy your right to freedom of religion and your right to freedom of speech in order to force you to celebrate. And this has been shown a number of people who have lost their jobs because they refuse to you know, march in a gay pride parade or, or something like that or 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 bow down to the, the you know, sodomite Borg. So it, it, the freedom of religion is being crushed by this. And this is not uh, unusual because when you look at the history of this, you know, like I was mentioned, the Scandinavian countries and so forth, uh, the people who are persecuted are those who stand against it. Say, we believe that God's law established for the laws of the universe says that this is not right. This is not good. And those are the people who are, are, are persecuted. And it's curious because, you know, you would think that this movement began with a live and let live attitude. You know, hey, what we do in our bedroom, that's our business and nobody should know about. Fine. Well, but you brought it out of the bedroom. You took it into the schoolhouse and you wanted to teach, you know, two mommies to kindergartners and all this. In other words, that was not actually what their agenda was. You can read their agenda, by the way. They published a book in, the 19, in 1990 after the ball in which they expressed what their agenda was to force Americans to adopt, accept and celebrate. And this is not a constitutional purpose. Well, this is We the People. The Constitution Matters coming to you over the Freedom Airways of WFYL. Join us next Friday morning as we explore the Dirty Dozen.